Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. I'm thrilled to bring to you today an interview with Dr. Stephen C. Hayes, the creator of ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Last January, I took an intensive course to learn more about ACT. One of my best friends and my former student who is now the best therapist I know, you guys know her from the equine therapy work she does and that podcast, Kate Lambie was all excited about ACT, but I didn't know as much about it because it's a newer, relatively speaking, therapeutic orientation, but it is a third generation cognitive therapy. And you know, cognitive therapy is my thing. So I was really excited to learn more and I became a huge fan. And since that time, I've been wanting to bring ACT to the podcast, but I wasn't sure the best way to go about it. And as things go... Recently, Dr. Hayes published a book called A Liberated Mind, How to Pivot Toward What Matters, and I was super excited when his publicist reached out to me to see if I'd be interested in promoting the book, which of course I was and am, and I've read it now, and it's fantastic. And the beautiful thing about ACT is that ACT can be used in the therapeutic context, but we can work act out on our own too. I shared the book with a close friend who was going through some vertigo, panic attacks, high anxiety. She's a business owner. She's the boss. So when she walks in the building, all eyes are on her and everyone expects her to lead and be on her A game. And she wasn't. Vertigo, panic attacks, high anxiety do not constitute one's a game. So I recommended the book to her. She got it on Audible and I talked to her just a couple weeks later and she said already everything had diminished. All the panic, all the anxiety had gone way down and she was learning strategies that she could integrate into her daily life on a consistent basis that were just very doable. And that's just one personal example that I know of, of the profound impact of ACT. And there's tons of research, which I know Dr. Hayes will get into in our conversation. But just a little bit more about Dr. Hayes. Stephen C. Hayes, PhD, is a professor of psychology at the University of Nevada, Reno. The author of 45 books and more than 625 scientific articles, he has served as president of the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy and the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, among others. Dr. Hayes was instrumental in developing the early protocols of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, ACT and the theory of cognition on which it is based. His research has been cited widely by major media, including Time, The New Yorker, The New York Times, Men's Health, Self, The Wall Street Journal, Psychology Today, O, The Oprah Magazine, and Salon. Dr. Hayes, welcome to the program. Awesome to be here with you. I took a two-week intensive last year on ACT, and I became an Uber fan right off the bat, and it was always one of my goals to present ACT to my listeners. So when your publicist reached out to me, I was really beyond excited and just so pleased to be able to share your profound work with my listeners. So thank you again so much for joining me today and for your time. Well, cool. I'm really looking forward to uh, walking through it. And uh, I tell you, I immediately have an emotional uh, reaction to uh, your uh, particular title because I sign all of my emails, Peace, Love, and Life. So I feel like I'm here in a in friendly uh, confines. And uh, let's see where it goes. Oh, right on. I love that. So I think a great place to start, and you do so in your book as well, is to share your own personal journey. Because I think when someone becomes exposed to ACT, 
it could probably seem almost too good to be true in a way. And they might think, oh, this might work for someone who's dealing with just a couple little things here and there, something that's a little bit troublesome in their life, some behaviors they want to change, habits they'd like to break. But you, your own journey shows that ACT and of course, tons of research we'll, we'll get to as well later. But that ACT is a powerful tool. It's a way of living, which I love. And it, it was born from your own personal struggle with panic disorder. Yeah, it really kind of started there. And, you know, actually the the data on this shows that it's uh, quite helpful to people who are really struggling, but also just for normal folks kind of navigating through life because that experience that I had led to trying to figure out what the underlying processes are. And we'll tell that story. But no, I am a clinical psychologist, also interested in basic research. And early on in my academic career, developed a panic disorder that gradually spun uh, down into, you know, narrower and narrower ways of of living. And I I say uh, in the my TED talk, or people can find that TEDx talk if they want to see me talk about it, how I kind of went down to hitting bottom. I did all of the logical, reasonable, sensible, and pathological things that your mind tells you to do. You know, when you have a, a panic attack, and mine first one was in a very public and kind of embarrassing uh, situation, immediately your mind starts saying, well, what you need to do is make sure that never happens again. Mm-hmm. But of course, then you're looking constantly at it. You're afraid as soon as you see any signs of it. And you're beginning to do things that are creating more and more pathways towards your attention being focused on it and a, a greater reaction to it. And I think that's true of many of the things of anxiety, depression, substance abuse. There's this process of you're doing small things that don't look like they would be pathological, but next thing you know, you're in this giant hole and you're trying to dig your way out and you keep digging your way in. Over a three-year period, I went from, you know, panic and uh, department meetings, which is where it started, and then taking long trips and things like that, to eventually, you know, riding an elevator, being on a phone call, going in and talking to three or four undergraduates was um, almost beyond imagination. You know, someone who has not experienced that may think, boy, is this strange? But it, And it is strange. I mm-hmm. I've tell the story in a liberated mind of, uh, of my spiraling into it, but some of those things, I have to do it just from memory. Like I remember being on a on a plane, which was hard as heck to get on because I was terrified that, you know, they were going to close the door. I wouldn't be able to get out, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And watching the stewardess give the instructions as to how to buckle up your seatbelt. I know people are going to think this is nutty unless you've really struggled with anxiety. And I'm looking at this performance like you would look at an Olympic athlete. Like, how does she do that? She stands up in front of a hundred people and she says these things and they have to be right. And she has to, like, make sound come out of her mouth. I mean, that's how far away from normal functioning that three years of struggle uh, took me down to. And uh, in the TEDx talk, if you want to see it directly, I actually take you down to a moment where I think I'm having a heart attack. And it turns out I'm having just another panic attack. And... At the bottom of that, there's a scream that comes out of my mouth that is horrific. It only happened three times in my life. Once when I was caught in a machine at work and almost killed. Once at the bottom of that panic disorder and then in the TED talk. And I'm never going to make that scream again. You can go hear it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a scream that basically says, I don't have any way out. Right. You know, it's going to take everything from me. I'm not going to be able to be a professor. Mm. I'm not going to be able to do anything to contribute in the way that I yearn for in my career. And sometime in there in the next, my guess is probably 10 or 15 minutes of silence and just desperation. I didn't find a way out, but I found a way in. Mm-hmm. And uh, that turn came out of my mouth with a statement of, I don't know who you are, said to no one at 2.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. But apparently you can make me hurt, you can make me suffer. 
But I'll tell you one thing you cannot do. You can't make me turn from my own experience. You can't do it. And what I was defying was that voice within, the one that tells me to run and fight and hide. And I think that we all have that little dictator voice. And if you feed it, it knows how to take even the most normal kinds of human functions of wanting to be present with others and contribute to others and participate in life and take it away from you. And I know there's people listening to us who are in that space. But in small ways, it's there in all of our life moments. And that's the story I tell on Liberated Mind as we unpack that over 40 years of research. And I wrote down that quote uh, as I was reading. You said, I will not run away from me. And it, it was just powerful. It struck me. Yeah, it was kind of a promise made to myself as I stood up from... Uh, uh, the carpet having sat there thinking I had to call the emergency room to get him to come and take me because of the heart attack I was having that I wasn't having. And that was the little promise is that I will not run from me, you know, never again. And, you know, in small ways I violate that all the time, but excuse me for living, I'm doing better. <laughs> And yeah. I'm doing better, and I'm, I'm, I've am i only been at it for 40 years, so I've got a little more better to go. But, uh, you know, when you make a turn like that, and life begins to open up very, very quickly, if you, and that's what I try to do in Liberated Mind, is walk through not just the science of it and the personal story and the science, the science story, how we learn this, but these little bumps that you can apply to your daily life that, begin to expand out the territory in which you get to be whole and free. And that, you know, your, you know, love and life, that's the place in which love and life is, is possible. Mm, indeed. And it's possible because you do something that the natural instinct, every part of us wants to turn away from the pain. We want to turn away from the fear. We want to turn away from the anguish, or we want to put up our dukes and fight, right? And you're yes. saying pivot toward, turn toward. Yeah. And I love, can you share also your story about your nightmares as a boy and how you had to turn toward the dinosaurs? The story I tell is as a, a, a young child, I had and dreams of uh, dinosaurs and they would come and kind of look in the window with gigantic di dinosaur eyes and I was terrified of them and I'd run from one room to another and they'd find what room I'm in and they would look through the window and eventually I'd have to bolt and run and it's one of those running dreams where no matter how hard you run the dinosaur runs faster no matter which turn you make they can make that turn you know just something right out of a Godzilla movie or something and somewhere in there, I had a, a lucid moment, a lucid dream, where I realized that in every dream, when the dinosaur catches me and bites me and is going to swallow me whole, I wake up. So I spun around and I ran towards the dinosaur and jumped in its mouth and woke up. And I remembered that often enough that it became kind of how I would conclude that dream and within just a little while. And I've done something similar with my children when they've had their night terrors and things like that. So this is really a powerful thing to teach kids to do. Uh, within just a little while, just a, a few nights, I think, uh, the dinosaurs didn't want to come anymore. Turns out they don't like this game. <laughs> <laughs> they want to chase they want to chase me. They don't want to just swallow me whole and wake have me wake up. So I think we know better. We really do know mm -hmm. to turn towards. And, and if you say turn towards pain and suffering, people sound like, oh, gosh, what's bitter medicine? I'd rather read the book about happy, happy, joy, joy. But it turns <laughs> out what our science shows is if you're running away from pain, you have to run away from love, too. You have to run away mm -hmm. from connection and belonging and joy. And it's the saddest thing we I didn't realize it actually for several years into the research program when when we began to see that people who are what we call experientially avoidant, they've learned to run, fight, and hide from their own experience, that as that builds, it starts with something negative. But as that builds, you have to run from what's positive too. Right. So there's a, a study done uh, by a colleague, Todd Cashton, 
We was following experientially avoidant folks who had social anxiety disorder. And nice things happen. You know, like people compliment you. People invite you to things. They they want you to come to their party. And, they, you know, and anybody feels good when that happens. Yeah, but if you're really, really determined, you know, not to feel anxious, yeah, you feel good when you get the compliment, when you get the invitation, when... And then almost immediately, boom, it plummets. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's in our culture. The bigger you are, the harder you fall. You know, don't hope you're going to be disappointed. You know, knock on wood. Don't tempt fate. And we have all these kind of things that say, watch out. Watch out for what? Watch out for joy, connection, Mm -hmm. love, Mm -hmm. contribution. It isn't just watch out for sad or mad or afraid. And it turns out that this process of running from the negative feelings can only kind of work, but it works in a way that's very painful in another way, when you run away from all of your feelings and you head towards the happy numb. Except the problem is numb is not happy. It's just not. Numb is like waiting for life to end. And that's not what we came here to do. That's not what you yearn to do. That's not really what you want. And so really, a liberated mind is about getting what you really want. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like initially, like, you know, take the pill, take your bit of medicine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's really not that at all. It's like show up to the whole of who you are with your history in this present moment where whole and free you can turn towards what brings meaning and purpose into your life and put it in there one step at a time. That's a joyful message. Mm-hmm. And an appreciation of the full range of the human experience, which includes the full range of human emotions, which currently in our culture, we really don't want to deal with the sadness and the pain and the depression. We want to just hop over those valleys, pop a pill for that, and move on our merry way. And what I love about ACT is it's turning toward, it's accepting, but not in the way of accepting. And then I guess this is how it's going to be from now on. I have to accept my misery, my pain, my depression, my anxiety. No, no. It's accepting that as part of the human experience and then providing tools for choices. That's why I love that liberated mind. The thoughts, they are thoughts. The feelings, they are feelings. And now I have some tools that I can use to make decisions about what to do with these. I can take the energy out of them. They don't have to control me and dictate my life. I have skills now, tools. Yeah, we can open up that space in which we're able to make choices about the the direction in our life. And ironically, it starts with showing up to what's already Mm -hmm. here, what is. Because, you know, there's no delete button in the nervous system. And so that acceptance word is not tolerance or resignation or what we sometimes say to people, you just have to accept it. No, it actually goes back to a Latin root that means to receive as if to receive a gift. And it's still in English. When you have a really precious gift and you're giving it to somebody, where you really want them to take that gift in the spirit in which it's offered, you might say, here, would you accept this? Mm. And, And what you mean by that is it's so precious. It's such a th- that you want the person to affirmatively will it or or bring it close by choice, not just passively receiving mm. it. And that's exactly what life's asking of us. Will you receive the gift of your own life, your own history? It's where wisdom resides. It's where the capacity for love resides. It's not, you know, happy, happy, joy, joy, smiley face buttons. I mean, you look at something like, why do we cry when babies are born? Why do we cry when when we see a, a, a wedding ceremony and we're witnessing love and, and commitments that people are making? Mm. It's precisely because we know that it isn't sugar soup. Mm. We know that that couple who's making those commitments is making a leap into the unknown and right in the vows, the traditional vows, are things like, you know, through poverty, through sickness, through the things that you know are going to be part of life. Things are going to happen. 
People are going to get sick. People are going to die. Things are going to happen. It isn't going to be all blue ribbons and success stories. And that's part of what makes it kind of such an interesting journey. I mean, if you had to read a novel, let's say, read a story, and here's the story. No matter what the person does, it always works out immediately. When the dragon shows up, you shoot him down out of the sky, boom. Who's going to read that right. story? I mean, no, we want to read Lord of the Rings. You know, we want to read uh, Star Wars. We want to read stories about, I'm not adequate, why me? You know, where just the normal hero's journey of a person who feels this is beyond them. I don't have the ability. I don't have the skills. I'm not the right. And that they find a way to step into the whole of who they are and a different sense of self shows up and allies show up and friends show up. And then you're able to focus on what's really important and build your behavior around it. And then mountains can be moved. I mean, we read those stories and I don't think it's because we read them in order to kind of just witness success. It's because we resonate to a life journey is not sugar soup. It's a challenge. It's, it's difficult. And no matter how big you get, there's more big to get. And that's the process of, of writing a story that's kind of a hero's journey. And I kind of try to put in the liberated mind the, the elements that people need to write their life story as a hero's journey. You know, not as sugar soup, every dragon got shot out of the sky in five seconds. That's just not the way it's going to work. You're going to have to slip and fall and slip and fall and slip and fall, but stand up and stand up and stand up again and again. And if you're willing to do that, you know, you can learn how to love. You can learn how to make contributions. You can learn how to be the best you you know how to be. If you're single, you've likely heard it all. You've been told you're too picky. You should just get on another dating app or that you're not trying hard enough. And you're probably really tired of hearing those messages because I know I was when I was single for all those years, which is why I felt the need to bring another perspective to the dating relationship self-help genre. Single is the new black, don't wear white till it's right, is my take on what the single life can be if we refuse to settle, we know that we're worth an extraordinary relationship, and we refuse to fall prey to single shaming. Trust me, it is a different self-help book. Check it out on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or on my website, www.drkarin.me, D-R-K-A-R-I-N.me. This reminds me of one of the quotes you have is, and I may get this wrong, so correct me. Uh, you say, we see life as a problem to be solved instead of an experience to be lived or something along those lines. Yeah. It's because this problem-solving mode yeah. of mind, which only showed up 200,000 to 2.8 million years ago, we know it's in that range because, you know, the chimpanzees don't do what your 12-month-old baby does that are essential to being able to do what you and I are doing right now to be able to have this symbolic thinking capacity. Mm -hmm. And although I think it originally evolved for cooperation, you know, can you bring me an apple from the other side of the ravine? I think is really how it started, probably just with the bidirectionality between names and, and sounds, which by the way, language trained chimps don't do your, don't send me an email about your dog. I know your dog's really smart, <laughs> but in controlled studies, no, they don't. If you, you learn it in one direction, but you don't derive it in two, but your 12-month ba old baby does. If you name an object and then say the name, they'll orient towards the object without any training. They'll know that that sound, quote, means, or is a name for, refers to this thing. And from that little seed, what you and I are doing right now grows and it becomes useful beyond just, I think, cooperation. It becomes useful in problem solving. You know, by the time you're three, four years old, you can say, you can think like, well, if I did this, I'd get right. that. And that would be better than that. And it's not by accident that as soon as you have that, as soon as you have that, you begin to problem solve, begin to apply that to yourself and you begin to view your own life as a problem to be solved and I tell the story in the book, it's the first place that things start happening that are really strange, that don't otherwise exist in life, such as 
people deliberately kill themselves. Six-year-olds kill themselves. Six-year-olds. Five-year-olds do very rarely, yes, but they do. And sometimes they even leave, leave notes. There's a story I actually put in the first act book, at the very first lines of that book. It said, a six-year-old child threw herself in front of a train today. The authorities said her mother had died from a terminal illness. You know, and so you have to imagine how young you were where you could imagine that maybe it would be better not to suffer this much. Right. And maybe I would actually be better to go to heaven and be with mama than mm-hmm. to face life as a six-year-old without her. So we start taking this new tool in our toolkit that has helped us so much in terms of being able to do wonderful things, such as I can talk to you through this freaking microphone. We can have a conversation. I mean, I'm looking around the room. I don't see a single thing around this room that I'm in, not one single thing that would be here without symbolic thought, without language and cognition, without problem solving, and without many people working together to, you know, put the chair that I'm sitting in together from, you know, dirt made into metal and from oil turned into the fabric from, you know, and they're shipping it and they're driving it and they're delivering it in the store people. And here it is, I'm sitting on it. You know, thousands of people put my rear end into the seat. <laughs> True. <laughs> what a wonderful, wonderful thing for cooperation and problem solving. And we can turn that back on ourselves and decide that life is a problem to be mm-hmm. solved. You're a puzzle, not a process to be experienced. Mm. But we have another mode. We have an, And if you see it tonight, if you see a sunset tonight, you'll do it. You'll say, wow, you're not going to say a little too pink. <laughs> That's a fact. <laughs> That's a fact. You know how to do this. Can you bring a wow mode of mind to your own life? Oh, I love that. And you, we say wow Sometimes when it's negative, too, if somebody's suffering in front of you and tells you a really horrific Mm -hmm. story, that'll be the first word out of your mouth. Wow. You're not going to say, oh, don't bum me out. No. You're not going to do that. But you'll do that to the person in the Mm. mirror. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) You do that. Boom. What's the matter with you? Knock it off. Exactly around the places that you need to, not need to, but that it would work a lot better to bring kindness and compassion and observation and description to be able to bring a mode of mind that's more wow based to like see the sunset or hear the suffering of a child to see that rich soup of your life as it actually is lived and then be able to turn your attention towards what brings meaning and purpose into your life stop running away yeah it's it's so powerful and it is something that it goes beyond therapy. It goes to a way of living. If you drink black coffee or hot tea, I know you've burned your tongue hundreds of times, or you've had to wait 20 minutes for your coffee to cool down, which by that time, your donut or muffin is long gone, and you've missed the joy of pairing that sweet breakfast item with your bitter black coffee. If it sounds like I'm speaking from personal experience, I am. But I've got good news for us. Drink Perfection takes beverages from scalding hot to the perfect temperature, where you can actually appreciate the flavor notes, by the way, in just 20 seconds without watering them down. Learn more at drinkperfection.com. And be sure to check out The Perfector's other application, taking red wine from room temp to wine cellar temperature again in just 20 seconds. Find out more at drinkperfection.com. I want to speak a little bit to what you've called the dictator within because that relates to what we've been talking about, how we turn on ourselves and how this language and thought and all these brilliant aspects of our mind, this powerful resource we have, how we so often use it against us. And and so how the dictator within then also how that then operates within psychological rigidity, because of course that's the place yeah. that ACT is, is trying to help us be freed up from our psychological rigidity into psychological flexibility, which we'll get to. But let's start with the place of where we are struggling because we're listening to that dictator and we're remaining fixed and rigid. Yeah, the dictator within is just allowing that voice that claims to be you 
I mean, you disappear into it. That's constantly criticizing, evaluating, judging, cajoling. You know, and there's things in there. Sometimes that voice will tell you things that are useful. You haven't done your taxes. There's one week left. You know, okay, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the reminder. Uh, but it'll also say things like you're unlovable. Right. You're never going to be lovable. Or, boy, you know, you screwed up so badly there. What's the matter with you? You need to. And then it'll give you advice sometimes that you know full well when you do it doesn't lift you up. It puts you down. And so... We want to have a problem-solving voice within. We just don't want to kind of turn the keys to the car over to it because there's more to you than that. I mean, you have ways of learning that go beyond language. You have biological sensitivities. If you look in the eyes of another person, you've got mirror neurons that are sort of clicking into what it's like to be them. You have these basic perspective-taking skills that are central to being able to love and connect with others. Babies have them. I mean, they jump out of the womb. You look into their eyes and they start dumping natural opiates. Mm -hmm. You know, we come prepared to love, to connect, to belong. And then here comes this mind that says, yeah, but you're only going to be wanted. You're only going to be included. You're only going to be in the group if you're special. And how can you be special? Well, you can be special by being specially grand. Yeah, but if you're special, what if they find out that you're actually not so grand? What if they find out that actually you're kind of sometimes saying more than you really know and that sometimes you're even lying? Do you know we lie to about one out of four people in small ways in our conversations? Little exaggerations. Oh, I only slept five hours last night. You slept five and a half. <laughs> yeah. Why did you round it down to five? Why didn't you round it up to six? Yeah. Because you want to be special. See, I'm especially able, even when I'm tired, to be able to, well, yeah, but do you know if you do a little white lie like that? Not an instrumental lie. You're trying to try to steal anything from the person. You're just doing your little omission and exaggerations, these tiny, tiny, tiny little things that are so innocent. Do you know that you're significantly less likely to want to speak to that person again? Wow. Or if they are now interested in you, you're significantly less likely to be uplifted by their positive opinions and interest of you. And so we've got this kind of process where the mind is this problem-solving mind, this predict, evaluate, pick a route, this problem-solving mm -hmm. part, is telling us constantly what to do. And as it invites us in to meet our basic yearnings, what we really want, and I walk through in the book, uh, there's at least six that I think are, are really you know central. And But take that one of belonging just as an example. We really want to belong. We come into life prepared to it. I mean, we're just, so our own biology is set up for it. We have whites around our eyes so we can see where people are looking. I mean, we've evolved ourselves as physical beings to connect and care because we're the social primates. We're the ones where if we're isolated, we're alone, we're one dead monkey. And our mind's telling us the way we're going to get in is by being especially needy or especially grand. Mm. And no, the way you're going to get in is by being a little more humble and by taking the time to connect to others in consciousness and to see that there's a betweenness there there's, that is inherently belonging, to see literally in the consciousness of others that you belong in consciousness in this funny group called human beings. You don't have to earn your way in. You have to show up to what's already right there. You're walking across the crosswalk, and if you look at somebody in their eyes, boom, you can sometimes see things about what's going on with them, how they see you, what do we actually do? We walk across the crosswalk and we look down right. and away. We've got people in these busy cities we've created by cooperation feeling as though they're so alone. I mean, they can go a week and not talk to anybody, and nobody cares about them. It's a lie, but it's such a powerful mental lie. The dictator just puts these conditions 
on how you can get to be part of the group that make it impossible. And even if you follow them, now you underneath it feel special. I'm special. Have you ever been around a narcissist? Have you ever been around somebody who, who's so great and so grand that everything is, I'm the best, mm. you know, you need me because I'm the greatest. You don't feel especially connected to that mm. person. And yet that's exactly what your mind's telling you to do is it be so special, positive or negative. And it's an example of one real basic human need in everywhere we look. The mind will tell you how to do that in a way that narrows your repertoire and makes it less likely to get that. But it keeps drawing you in because every little step feels like you're going to get closer mm-hmm. as you get farther and farther away. So that's um, how rigidity comes out of problem solving, being put where it doesn't belong. And if we can ally ourselves with this more wow mode of mind and then the whole of us, parts of us that are not just verbal, analytical, judgmental, we have a capacity to get what we really want. And that's the story that I tell mm-hmm. in the book. And when you speak about narcissists, and then I'm, I'm, I'm also thinking, you know, you said that people have this desire to, they, they feel that they will be able to be part of things. They will be able to belong if they can show us that they are especially needy or especially grand. It also relates to a victim mentality that sometimes people cling to, yeah. and it feels very safe and secure, and you're vindicated for your misery because you've been through so much. And you're saying, yes, turn toward what you've been through, but... If it's then you're clinging to this victim mentality, you're just, you're stewing in that misery and that's not thriving in life either. No, exactly. That story that you buy into is a clown suit you climb, you climb into. And once you're inside the clown suit, it's really hard to be the whole person you are, to be all that you can be. And it's hard to get what you really want and to draw people to you. Have you been around somebody who wants to play I'm a victim in every freaking conversation? Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, even if you love the person, they're your friend or your family member, you want to be with them. But that story and that attachment and here it goes yet right. again. And it'll even turn on you how you should have been. Why didn't you call me? <laughs> Why? You know, I'm, you start getting guilt yeah. tripped by a person who climbed inside the victim story and even you get drawn into the story. You, a person who's a friend and ally. And eventually, what do you want to do? Run. You don't want to be with It's exhausting. Run. Run. It's exhausting. I'm not sure I want that person as a friend. I don't want to answer that phone call. You know, you got your little thing that says who's calling and the phone rings and you don't pick it up. You know, and then if the person knew that, oh my gosh, that would be really pulled into the victim story. Yeah, but if they did that to you, you would run even harder. And so you go like, ah, make it stop. The part that we need to make stop is the turning the keys of our life over to the dictator within. Because it does not know how to live a life. It's only part of us. I want it when I'm doing my taxes, when I'm fixing my car, when I'm making investments. I want this judgmental, analytical list of pros and cons mind. But I don't want it when I'm showing up to what I really care about or when I'm seeking peace of mind or when I'm reaching out to love. You know, I, I don't want it when I'm trying to find who I am and how to be in life in a way that's whole and free. It doesn't know how to do that. Mm-mm. And if it did, guess what? We'd all be happy. Right. We would all, because we all have that voice and our default mode, literally inside the brain, there's a thing called the default mode network. It's the one that's activated by the narrative self and the problem solving mind. And people who have high kind of, energy around the default mode network, which is very much what I'm talking about with this default self, they're exactly the ones who are going to have way more misery in life and way less peace of mind in life. If you meditate, if you uh, you know open up in the ways that I try to walk through in a liberated mind, which is linked to that kind of state, the default mode network quiets down. You start showing up. Your attentional flexibility changes. We can show it as, at the underlying neurobiology of it. So we've we've allowed this one part of us 
to command the whole of us. And uh, it's so real. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's almost us talking. It isn't you talking. Heck, sometimes you'll catch that some of that critical voice within is your mama talking. (laughs) It's your dad talking. It's your sister talking. It's the television talking. It's, you know, the experiences that you've had in life talking, really easy to program a mind. It's really easy. And if we can't back up a little bit from that and make some choices, then you better pray that you got really good programming. Well, and this this is reflective uh, in your first pivot of ACT, of cognitive defusion. And before I came across ACT, I was certainly into my CBT. I mean, I love, I love me some Albert Ellis, R-E-B-T all day long, because I love the idea of, and it's similar to what you do, but you guys take it a step further, which I love. But the idea of that feeling, then the thought that's fueling the feeling, and then the the underlying belief or that's fueling the thought, and then the meaning that that belief is laden with. And so all of this is a way of kind of, that's a first step to defuse, right? Just to take a step back, to get a little objectivity on our own thought processes, right? To try to take that vantage point away from being so immersed in it that we can't see any clarity. So if you don't mind just giving a little bit of a explanation of each of the pivots, because I think that's obviously where the, the power is, and that, that's what we do. Th- those are the steps we take as we try to become more flexible psychologically. Let me, let me touch diffusion and then give a summary of the six, and then you okay. can see where we want to do a deep dive, because I think you picked out one that's really important. The diffusion one is one that's maybe a little more, you know, feels a little different than what you'd see in other things. And ACT is part, except as a commitment therapy, we call it ACT. ACT is part of the cognitive and behavioral tradition. I mean, I've been president of those societies, etc. You mentioned Albert Ellis. He was a personal friend. He's an endorser. He's on the back of even my book about cognition, uh, this basic geeky thing called relational frame theory. Albert Ellis is on the back as an endorser of it. I love Big Al. And we can do a little more, I think, when we really understand how language works than detecting and challenging and disputing and changing so that we can get to what is actually in Ellis's thought, getting to this kind of radical acceptance. But uh, what the diffusion skills are, are to take steps that allow you to see your formation of meaning and, and reasoning and, and thinking in flight to catch it in flight so that there's a little bit of distance between the person who's noticing your thoughts and the, and the thoughts themselves. And that in that little gap, there's a, a choice that can happen as to whether or not to be guided by the thought so that you see the thought as it forms and you can have a choice as to how it lands without having to Subtract it and eliminate it because so much of this stuff is so automatic. It's happening in 300 milliseconds. I mean, you're making your thoughts happen in less than half a second. And so, I mean, if I said Mary had a little, (laughs) if you're in the U.S., if you're an an English speaker, everybody listening just had something show up. And if you said, well, man, that's really bad. I don't want to have that. L word show up, you know, and you tried really hard to have something else, you know, like, uh, okay, I'll just think pencil. <laughs> right. Well, then you said, Mary had a little pencil, tense pencil. Yeah, but your mind would go, parentheses, and not a <laughs> lamb. <laughs> le, 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 le. Right. There it is. There it is. And now you, and, and then once you've got that pencil and not a lamb, I can do something like this. Hot. You'll mm-hmm. think cold, black, you'll think white, pencil, you'll think freaking lamb. So now you've got more lamb, not less lamb. So you put things in the mind easily. They don't come out because there's no delete button in the nervous system. There's no process known in the psychology called unlearning. There's only inhibition of learning, and that's not the same thing. And then as you do the logical, reasonable, sensible thing that a mind would tell you to do, logically is not a contradicts what went before. Psychologically is not a relates to things. 
It relates to them as different or as opposite, but they're still related. And you can be reminded of them. And I can tell you as a panic disordered person in recovery, the word relaxation can be terrifying to people with a panic disorder. Terrifying. Because as soon as you think relaxed, you go, relaxed. Bing, 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 anxious. And when I'm thinking about anxiety, guess what? I start feeling anxious. And when I really then think it would be really bad if I got anxious, I might get so anxious I can't talk or whatever. Now anxiety is something to be anxious about. So what we teach instead are these little micro skills. They sound a little funny, son of them. And I walk through it in liberated mind, these little micro skills that quickly can kind of pry the language monster off your face so that you can look at it, not just look at the world structured by it. Uh, can I give you one example people oh, can yeah, try? Well, take any thought that you have that's really kind of the kind of thing you don't share readily that happens often, that's critical, has a little emotional punch, formulate it into a sentence. Now, it could be, you know, deep down, I'm unlovable, or, you know, I'm a liar, nobody should trust me, or whatever, something. Form it into a sentence, and now shorten that sentence down so it's not too long. Notice how it impacts you. And then not to ridicule your mind, but just to notice that there's more things you can do with that sentence than what you normally do. Mentally sing it to the tune of happy birthday. <laughs> just do it. I know it's crazy. Just do it mentally. And as you do that, a little space opens up. There's other things you could do with that thought other than run, fight, or hide each of which are very predictable what they're going to do. Maybe we could just sit with that thought as a thought. And now the issue is, what are you going to do with it? And so we do word repetition, something that Titchener, the father of American psychology, came up with, uh, or at least one of the fathers, uh, 100 years ago. We do um, visualizing if it was an object, how big would it be, etc., you know, we say the words backwards. We uh, say them in funny voices. Uh, pick the politician you like least. And now say your negative thoughts in the voice of that politician. <laughs> or pick a cartoon character. If you're thinking I'm unlovable, see how it lands when it's I'm unlovable. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not really and be careful with the funny ones we have some that are funny some that are not you're not ridiculing yeah. your mind it's there just to pry it off your face and one way i like reminding people that we're not ridiculing i actually do this in another tedx talk people can find it by googling my name is picturing how young you were when you first started having scary thoughts like that Take a little time to put that kid in front of you in imagination and then take this thought that you have that's painful and have it come out of that kid's mouth right in front of you in imagination. And I guarantee you, you're going to want to hug the kid, not right. slap him. You're not going to want to wag a finger at him. Well, let's just do that same thing to the person in the mirror. Mm -hmm. You know, Mary had a little. It's not going away. If you had those thoughts dig in like I'm unlovable or life is unlivable, they're going to go to your grave with you. But it doesn't mean what they say they mean. It's just part of your history. And um, you get to choose how it lands, not whether or not it's there. That's already done. Your historical being and your nervous system doesn't have a delete button, but you get to choose how it lands. And so we teach in the liberated mind, I teach the diffusion skills and this yearning for coherence, which is what I think is underneath this mind of ours, trying to figure right. everything out. You know, it makes sense. We want to understand, of course. But we have a lot of contradictory things in us. So the kind of understanding we really get is not a list of pros and cons that have only pros on them or only cons on them. Instead, what we get is to be able to back up and have functional coherence in this sense. Which of these thoughts does my experience tell me would be helpful to me in this situation? And let 
ourselves be guided by voices within when they're useful and respectfully decline the invitation of our mind to help us when they're not. And maybe you'll find other sources within that are maybe more intuitive or sources without. And as you take that space, and it really, like you're, you're saying, it flies in the face of how we're wired cognitively. We're wired to make meaning, top-down processing. We want to fill in gaps, right? Sure. So we want to take all this nebulous information and, and, as you're saying, have a coherent understanding. But that's just how our brains are wired Yet, so we sure. have to then do these exercises, and I love that you you provide so much grace because we can all say, "Listen, I didn't I didn't wire my brain to do this. This is the way brains function and minds function. So yep. let's just give ourselves a break and then go." But I don't have to be beholden to this functioning because I know now ways, yeah. strategies that I can get in there, get that distance from my thoughts, see it as a mm-hmm. thought, and then decide, make the choice. Does it serve me? Does it serve the life I want, the values that I that are part of me and I am becoming? And that's where the power is. So when we get that, dis- that distance, we diffuse to my mind, we diffuse the energy. So just by virtue of getting that distance, we right away have taken the sting out of those powerful messages that may have completely ruled us before. No, absolutely. And and, and if we take the steam out of them, well, then why do we have to fight them and try to eliminate them when there isn't any way anyway? I mean, if you had a very critical parent, that critical parent voice is going to be in your head forever. It has no place else to go. But can we be kind with ourselves and sort of step back a little bit and give us the freedom to be able to write this next moment in our life story in a way that fits what we want to really be about? And so even at the level of the neurobiology, everything starts coming, calming down. You get more attentional flexibility as you do these things. And what we've done, and I do think I'm a little proud of this part, you know, that night on the carpet with my hitting bottom and panic and the earliest randomized trials where we said here's a completely different way forward that's kind of makes sense but it was closer to our spiritual and wisdom traditions i knew as a child of the 60s it was close to you know things that i learned about in mindfulness training and living on you know eastern communes and and all the kinds of things that i did as a hippy dippy (laughs) person uh, even psychedelics, actually, which has come back. I mean, you can see the underlying neurobiology there. By the way, don't just do recreational drugs. That's <laughs> not what we're talking about. But, um, you know, can, can we distill this wisdom that's out there down to a very small set of things? I wanted the 20% that does the 80%. And, and we just cooked it down to six things. And you can keep six things in your head. You can learn. You can catch it. There's six that are that have a negative side and a positive side, and the the subtitle of the the book, uh, at least the one in in the U.S. The, the Brits uh, subtitled it differently, but says how to pivot towards what matters. That we can take the energy that's inside what we really really want. That's right inside our pathology. We're kind of giving ourselves the wrong answer for the right reasons. There's nothing wrong with us for wanting to feel good. There's nothing wrong with us for wanting to figure it all out and understand it and get all our cognitive ducks in a row or to only uh, attend to kind of what makes sense of our past and future or, or to you know try to achieve immediately or all the things that we do that create inflexibility. Can we take the energy that's inside that and pivot it towards like swinging a dance partner around. This is really like a life dance move to learn to swing it around in a new direction. And so you can take yearning for belonging that we come into the world and swing it towards connection and consciousness and this different sense of self that allows you to do that. This deep sort of more spiritual sense of self that is connected inherently to others you can take that yearning for figuring out an understanding on coherence and swing it towards a kind of understanding that is mm-hmm. functional can we be a little more humble and just take what's useful and leave the rest that's a kind of coherence so i walk in the book through how to take these underlying yearnings rein in the dictator within and then this small set there's only six of them and when you get it it turns out that's the 20% that does the 80%. It's the, I think the science shows we're sitting on more than 3,000 mm. studies now uh, in the 40 years that have been at this that uh, 
this small set does more in more areas, not just mental health, but behavioral health, dieting, exercise, but not just that. I was in Rio and saw people win Olympic gold medals with ACT coaches. But not just that, other CEOs of Fortune 100 companies are doing spectacularly well as leaders using ACT methods. But not just that, we can rein in prejudice and stigma and deal with things like the challenges that immigrants face. The World Health Organization has adopted ACT as what they're now putting out into the immigrant camps to help immigrants step up to the challenges of being you know, cast out of their own countries, sometimes by violence. I mean, we can do a lot with a little. That last one I'm especially pleased of. They did it with an act cartoon book and a little audio because oh, people couldn't wow. read. You know, so we're not so complicated. It's just tricky because your mind's tricking you and telling you that you're more like a tax form to be filled out, a math problem to be solved, or a, a car to be fixed, and it's not true. And, That's not. And who I love we it because in the book you do you bring up you weave in the research, and I'm such a geek. I love study right. after study. I mean, I, I want to hear it all, but the layperson maybe doesn't want to hear. It, but you weave it in so seamlessly that people can get that support for those people out there who are skeptical. They get the support they need from the data that you present, but you do it in such a very easily able to be consumed manner. I just, I really want to just give another shout out to the book because as someone reads it, it is meant someone like me, a psychologist will dig all of it and love the research that you cite Um, from people having dramatic decrease in depression after just four sessions of ACT training. And then you had the Swedish study that looked at people's uh, sick leave and disability and dramatic reduction. And then five years later, still dramatic reduction. And so for anyone who's interested in that kind of data, it's there. But also the training is something that someone who has never really had any interest in psychology can still absolutely digest it and benefit from it. Yeah, this is the uh, book that I hopefully reads in a way that just feels like it's an easy conversation. But um, took me eleven years to write <laughs> the freaking thing, and and frankly, of a lot of it, the last three years especially was um, working with a really wonderful development editor who worked with uh, the late Lynn Ostrom, actually the Nobel Prize winning uh, political scientist. Uh, uh, a guy named Emily Luce, I, I love her, man. She just <laughs> tortured me. There's way more. This is a 400-plus page book. There's way more on the floor than there is in the book, I think, by at least oh a factor gosh. of three. And what I had to learn as best I could is how to get the geek <laughs> out and, and land in such a way that I, I think this is a book literally you can give to your mother and she's going to yeah. like it. No, you know, that yeah, it, it doesn't. It's not a technical tome. It's a story. It's my story. It's a science story. But it's also uh, uh, an invitation. It has that think book quality of, golly, what's going on in the modern world? And is there anything we can do about it? Linked up to this self-help thing, but not focused on a specific thing. It's not like you get this book because you're depressed or anxious or substance use. You know, it's just dealing with life's challenges. So Dr. Hayes, if someone is curious about, okay, I am enthusiastic, I'm buying into ACT, but specifically, what can I start doing to achieve or to work toward or to exercise my own psychological flexibility? What are these six pivots? We're going to wrap up this episode right here, but I want to let you know that Dr. Hayes provided another hour of content in which he gets into depth about each of the six pivots. And what's really cool about that is he provides essentially a guided meditation. So this would be a great opportunity for you to examine each pivot in an experiential fashion. What better way to begin to fully understand the pivots than by having the founder of ACT walk you through each one of them. I'll be sending out this episode to all of you who get my newsletter, my love and life newsletter. And so if anyone else wants that episode, be sure to go to my website, loveandlifemedia.com, and you'll get a link and that will allow you to get access to this private episode. It's going to be a real treat. Do yourself the favor of enjoying this perk from 
one of the very big players in psychotherapy today. The love and life hack for this week is act, accept. It's not resignation, acceptance. Commitment. Commit to yourself. Do yourself the loving thing by quieting that inner dictator. And therapy. Isn't it awesome to know that so much of the therapeutic work we want to do, we can do on our own, as Dr. Hayes described today. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson April, and as always, I so appreciate those of you who subscribe to the podcast, rate episodes, and review episodes. I truly, truly am so thankful. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abram.